This morning we have a very special speaker, and I'm going to just read the paragraph that was prepared for me about Ruth. Ruth Hubbard first attended Urbana InterVarsity's triannual student missions conference as a high school teacher and director of children's ministry at her church. She went to Urbana again 13 years later and began a journey that led her to join Wycliffe Bible Translators, where she eventually became a member of their top management team. She represented Wycliffe at Urbana 09, Urbana 12, and Urbana 15. In 2016, she moved to Madison and became InterVarsity's vice president and now is the overall director for Urbana. And it's coming up this December. She's got a very, very full plate, but she has taken time out to come and be with us today. Would you welcome Ruth Hubbard with me, please? Yes. Thank you. A couple of weeks ago, I got a phone call from my doctor's office. It was one of the nurses who worked there, and she said, uh, doctor wanted to let me know we have results back from the test that you had last week. Everything's benign. It was really good news. In fact, it was the kind of news that makes the other not-so-good news of the day, you know, the traffic or the whatever, not feel so bad, actually. I didn't really care about the rest of the thing. That was, that was really good news. I love the fact we've got, you know, the pastor up here with the twins. One of my closest friends called me a couple of years ago. We were chatting. She says, by the way, um, Vanessa and Brian called us, and you know they were going into the doctor. It's the time in the pregnancy when you get to discover gender. They hadn't decided if they were going to or not. The doctor essentially said, I'm going to tell you because it's boys, twins. <laughs> I hear you don't remember anything in the first year, so just, you know. But, but it was, that was really good news after we got over the delightful shock of it all. Uh, I, I've had times where I walk into the office sometimes in the morning and I'm thinking, oh, it's gonna, here's a day. There's a lot of things on the schedule. I for, hmm. And I walk in and somebody goes, donuts. <laughs> I go, eh, that's good news. Like that, there's good news to that. All of these things are good news. We love good news. I find myself in conversations with students these days, and one of the things that I'm hearing from them is that what they're hearing around them, when they, when they watch the news, when they, when they don't watch the news, they watch it on the little devices and little snippets like I do, actually. I could be all judgy, but I can't because they watch the news the same way I do, what they pay attention to. When, when I hear these stories, what they're hearing from us, actually, isn't really that good. There's a lot of bad news. I don't have to convince anybody. We didn't have to build anything in the Urbana program to convince students today that the world is a hot mess in a great need. But here's the thing that has me really kind of all bound up right now. Why don't they know that there's a good news? Why is it that all they're hearing from the church sometimes is how bad it is? Because you and I, my brothers and sisters, are good news people. We are people of the gospel. This is what we are called to. This is who we are. In fact, if I were going to hashtag it, I'd have to hashtag it best news ever. 
It's the kind that sort of overshadows all the rest of it, puts it all in perspective. It doesn't mean that the mourning doesn't still happen. It doesn't mean the hard things aren't still difficult. It just means that we know that there's something more, there's something better, there's something yet to be. There is going to be a fulfillment of all of God's promises that is happening now and continues to happen until there's complete fulfillment. We have the greatest news ever. So I was looking at Isaiah 62, 61, 62, that would be like a trick on all of us, 61, and preparing, God and I had a little bit of a wrestling match, and I told him it would be super cool if he could give me some special, unique insight, something to share about this passage that nobody would thought of before, or at least was kind of rare and wonderful, and we could all be terribly impressed by me. God told me, no, in fact, the playbook that he handed me, I now realize it's, it's more appropriate than I thought. It's a Vin, Vince Lombardi move. Um, it's a this is a football kind of a conversation that we're going to have today. You and I are going to go back to some real basics. We are a good news people. And what is it that is this good news? And what does that mean for us? I think we need to go back to it all the time. And so that's where we're going to spend our morning together is in this space of we are a good news people. It is a good news that our God, the great and mighty sovereign God of the universe, created all of earth. He had the power and the authority. He had the capacity to create. He had the imagination to create. I mean, a platypus. More than 200 kinds of beetle. This is a great and mighty and creative God, and he created the earth, and he created humanity. He put us here, and not just didn't just put us here, but when he placed us on this earth, he placed us here in right relationship, in a righteous, holy relationship with the earth that he'd created and all that's in it, with himself as the triune God and with one another. It was beautiful. And then this thing happened. We like to talk about it like it it happened. In the church realms, we like to call it the fall. You've heard this, the fall? I'd like to put a petition out. If any of you want to sign it with me, you can. I would like to finally stop calling it the fall. Eve was not walking along one day, and she didn't sort of trip and lose her balance, and Adam did not see her go down and fall over the top of that and land on the ground. It was not a fall. It was a rebellion. They dove head first and said, God, we know better than you. I know you told us this, but we think we've got our own things. We got it under control. And with that rebellion, these relationships, this righteousness and holiness that God created and intended for his creation was broken. And so humanity's relationship with God, broken. Humanity's relationship with the earth, broken. Humanity's relationship with one another, not just the man and the woman in a marriage. Our human relationships are broken, and we live in this place of brokenness. So there is some bad news. Things are a hot mess. Sometimes when we find ourselves going, I just don't understand why we can't get along. I do sin. We're driven by sin and selfishness. We live in that space. We live on a world, on an, in a world that has not yet been fully renewed and restored, but unfortunately, we sometimes live in it as if it hasn't been renewed and restored at all. Sometimes we live like people that have no hope. God at this moment had a choice to make. 
It it was kind of a simple choice when you're God and you can do anything you want to do. He could have said, wow, that didn't work out well. Control, alt, delete. (laughs) If I were in charge, that's what I'd have done to (laughs) y'all. Boom, gone. I don't have time for this. Not my circus, not my monkeys. I'm so glad that that's not what God chose. God instead, he looked and said, I will bring it back to what I designed. And that choice for our holy God was a choice of sacrifice. It was to choose the way of the cross. And for us, we have to understand what God is, what we're going to see in Isaiah, what we're going to see in in some other passages that we're going to look at today, and the light of our reality, and know that there are two realities that we are talking about in this space of the way of the cross, God is bringing about a new creation. He is on mission to bring all things back to that place, to fulfill all promises, to bring us back to a place where we, the fallen ones, the rebellious ones, are standing around the throne together with people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language singing, holy, 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 that's coming We have glimpses of it, but it's not done yet. We know how the church is not so much singing this song together these days. This work that he's doing is at one level in the eternal realms done. Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. The fulfillment is finished in the blood that I've just shed. And yet we live inside of time and in that chronological space It is process for us. It is the mission of God throughout all of human history from that time of the rebellion until the time of his return. And we live in that place in between. And the good news is we can live there confident in what is yet to come. And confident, in fact, not just that it's yet to come, but that Jesus, who invited us to pray, Thy work, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, knew what he was telling us to say when we said that. That that was actually possible, that that this shalom, this place of holiness, was possible at least in glimpse and parts and starts and pieces now. That we could know what it is to live in a place of restoration and wholeness and renewal. I, I personally believe... Uh, and there's other people who believe this with me, so we're either deluded altogether or not, but I, I really do believe that there is an aspect of the character and nature of God that he is embedded in every ethne on earth. I know we're created in the image of God, there's a little bit of that sense, but that there's something about each culture that in some way understands God in ways that others don't. I began to understand this myself Uh, The first time I was in Ukraine with a group of people who'd been there, it was not long after the walls were coming down. So the very, very early 1990s. And the Ukrainians were now no longer under Soviet rule, and the Christians were beginning to practice their faith without as much fear, more publicly. They could actually have an open-air service. But I sat with a group of older Ukrainian women. We'd been working together out in a very small village And um, as we were sitting, they began to sing, and the tones that I heard in their voices, and I knew they were singing hymns, but the tones that I heard in their voices had a deeper lament than I was used to in the songs that I sang. I, I come from the United States, and it was the 90s, and everything was happy. 
We sing happy songs. I heard a lament and a deepness in them, and I heard in them, though, not a depressing lament, a hopeful one. And then I began to hear that same tone when I listened more carefully to the music from the African-American church. Then when I began to listen to the music from other peoples who had been oppressed and held down and yet had hope. So I learned something about the God who suffers with us because of that people. Well, this is the people, the Hadi of Cameroon. I think there's something that they learned about themselves because of their own language, a unique thing in their own language, but it, it helps me learn something about God as well. Lee and Tammy are people from the United States who went. Lee is a, a linguist translator. He worked as a translator and a consultant with a group of Hadi men who were translating the New Testament into their language. And he had learned by this point on in the process that the Hadith verbs had three forms. They would end in an A, an I, or the letter U. So they'd have an ending in A, an E, or an U. So if the word go as a verb, it could be go A, go E, or go U. They were having a hard time trying to find the best way to describe the love of God. The love of God that you and I, if you've played around in the Greek or you've heard a pastor talk about the Greek, it's the agape, love of God. They were, they just, there was no way to explain it. He was having a hard time explaining this to the, uh, the pastors and the other translators that he was working with from the community. One night, through a dream, God directed him to a specific verb. It's a verb that's used to describe love in their language. And so he went and he sat down and he says, I have a question for you, gentlemen. Um, is it possible for you to hedah your wives? And they said, oh, oh, yes. We use that word, and when we use that word, it means that we, we care for our wives, we're concerned about them, uh, we enjoy them, we're in a relationship with them, as long as they do the things that wives are supposed to do, as, as long as they're faithful to us and they care for us well, we hedah them. We thought, okay, good. Took notes. He says, all right, next question. I... I can you hadee your wives? Oh, oh yes, yes, we have that word. We use that word as well. It means that we loved them once, but we no longer love them. I've translated this as we've lost that loving feeling. <laughs> but, it, but, it, but it is that, that idea of like, oh, yeah, there, there was love once, now there's not so much. I thought, oh, okay, and Lee wrote the notes down. He says, I have one more question for you. Can you hadoo your wives? And their instant response was laughter. They're like, <laughs> like that was the funniest thing they've ever heard. They go, no, 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 we don't have that word. We, we don't have that word. We, we don't, no, we couldn't do that. If, if that were true, if we had dude our wives, that meant that we would love her even if she didn't cook dinner or carry the water or if, even if she was unfaithful to us. No, 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 not, no. And they continued to laugh and giggle and carry on, and Lee waited just long enough, and then he asked the question, what if I told you that God hadoos you? What would that mean? And they were silent, and then some of them began to cry. And finally someone said, this, this would mean if God devoos us, it means that he loves us no matter what we do. 
In fact, it means that he loved us before we knew he existed and that there were certain things that he asked of us in our behavior and in what we would do. He loved us before we were in existence. This would mean he would love us millennia after millennia after millennia, no matter what we would do, he would just be compelled to love us. And Lee said, exactly. That, that's the word. And so for that community, a quirky thing in their own language, not having a certain form of a verb unlocked the love of God for them. But what I find is when I hear that story, it unlocked the love of God and my understanding of it for me. I began to see God in a new way. I think about him in a new way because I have seen him through the eyes of the Hadi brothers and sisters that we have. God is a good news God. His good news is conveyed to us in our culture sometime. It's conveyed by prophets. There's a prophet, Isaiah. Um, you don't have to be able to read anything on the screen right now. That was, that's, it's good. I just wanted to uh, point you to a resource. If you're not familiar with the Bible Project, I encourage you, Google it, find it, and begin using it. So the Google, the, the Google, yeah, the Google might have this. The, the Bible Project has a two-part summary of the book of Isaiah. The whole thing together is less than 20 minutes of your time, and it takes you from beginning to end, and it will help you understand and see. The whole of Isaiah is a prophetic word. It's actually a number of different prophecies that, that show the, the, the call of people to repentance and say, essentially, you guys have messed up in a big, big way, and judgment is coming because a righteous God will judge. But it's also a, a book of hope. But there is, this same God is the God who brings back who restores. And for the nation of Israel, it was at a period of time when they were very rebellious. Eventually, they were taken into captivity, and then they were taken into captivity more and for longer. It, it spans over a few hundred years, but the message is very consistent. There's, there's judgment coming. You need to repent. They don't. God is going to bring, there, there, there will be fulfillment to his promises, but you need to pay attention. That message over and over and over again so by the time we get to the last portion of Isaiah, we have this beautifully constructed 11 chapters. I taught literature for 11 years, and I found great delight in literature that was somehow stories that were developed in really beautiful patterns where you began to see, oh, this thing is at the center, and then on either side of it this, and on either side of it that. These, three, these, these 11 chapters in Isaiah are designed that way. Our God, a good news God, he deserves that kind of attention to detail and that kind of creativity by his prophets. But at the middle of this, 60 through 62, the servant announces God's kingdom. And it's from the center of that that we are looking today that the theme for the week comes from the 61st chapter. And you'll see here it's broken into four parts. The first part, three verses, there's an unnamed prophet who is essentially saying, this is what my job is. He's declaring his own mission or his job description. And then there are two portions of God. One, God saying, yep, and here's my promises in light of that. Here's how I, I, I affirm what this prophet says that his role or mission is. And then there's a promise of a coming new covenant 
So a greater fulfillment of promise. And then the last section again, the prophet speaking again. And, And it almost, if you can imagine, it's like the prophet made this declaration, like, here's my mission. And then God comes over and says, yes, it is. And I'm behind this mission completely. I'm going to be the one that brings it to fulfillment. And then it's like the prophet does a little happy dance. You know, it's like going, it's so cool that God is a part of this. Like, yes, I, I believe that was true, but thank you for that affirmation. We're going to look at the first three verses. The first three, this announcement of the mission of this unnamed prophet, and then we'll barely glimpse at the beginning, of the, the end, second half of three, and the beginning of four, because I want you to see the trajectory of, of where it's going and what God's affirmation is into that space. So if you will stand with me, I'm going to read this portion of scripture for you, and it's just a way of us to, to show honor that this is the word of God. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, of the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. This is the word of God. Maybe seated. <clears throat> now, remembering that this is a message in a specific location, it's a local message to a people of God, some of them still being held captive by Babylon, and they've been there for generations. Some of them have begun to come back to Jerusalem and to what had been their promised land. It's a mess, but they're in this process of things, and this is the words that the prophet has spoken to them. I'm coming to proclaim, release, uh, proclaim all of these things. So what I'd like us to do for a few minutes is unpack it a little bit. It is not necessarily all that important that you know every every word and every nuance perfectly, that you have all the understanding of that, but there are a few of those details that I think help us experience the richness of the whole. You have a pretty good idea of what this prophet has said already. We sang about it, like all the songs this morning pretty much repeated what this prophet says. So we've got that part, but it it sometimes gives us a little bit of a a richer view of the the nuances that are there. So things like... The Spirit of the Lord. When the when Spirit of the Lord in, in the Old Testament is capitalized, that's been a decision made by the translator. Hebrew doesn't have capital letters. And so they kind of say, ah, we think this is their, their meaning God's Spirit the way we understand it as Trinity. But for the original hearers of this prophecy, they believed and worshipped a single God. That was the unique thing about God at that time, that there is a single God, not many gods, it is Yahweh. So the Spirit of Yahweh is on me. They would have paid a lot more t- attention to Yahweh than Spirit in their reading of it. The spirit of Yahweh is on me because the Lord has anointed me. 
This anointing is not like God saying, hey, um, can you come help me with this one project this afternoon? Or I've got a project for you to do. I'd like you to take on a project for me on my behalf. It's not an anointing to something like that. It's the kind of anointing that came to a king. It's the anointing to a role, not a job, a career. And there's a difference. You, you do a job, you live in your career in some ways, at, at least this kind of career. So this is, this is an invitation to be someone who does certain things because they are who they are. You know the difference between you do stuff because it's what you're supposed to do, and I do these things because this is who I am. So it's that kind of an anointing. And then, as it's structured, I'll, I keep putting the same first line at the top of each of these slides to remind us, it's all in light of anointed by God, God has sent me to do these things. So that's, that's why you keep seeing that phrase there. You've got this anointed to do some proclaiming. There's actually three, three different proclaiming things here. That word proclamation is a word that is more like reporting than announcing. So I can make an announcement that at 2 o'clock this afternoon we're all going to meet at some ice cream place and we're going to have chocolate ice cream. And that could be an announcement. I could announce something is happening, is going to happen. But this is not that kind of an announcement. This would be maybe later in the day if we had all gone for that ice cream and someone would come and report to others, hey, they went for ice cream and they had ice cream. It's a report of something that has been. It's the kind of report that would come when there was a, a battle between two nations and the messenger would come to the king and report what had happened in that battle. So this is a report of what has been. Now remember, God lives in a place of eternity. We live in chronology. And so sometimes God reports something as it has been that we have not yet experienced in our chronology. So we get confused a little bit, but like, oh, okay, was this God talking in that space or this space? Okay, so we've got this proclamation, a proclamation of good news to the poor. And it's not uncommon for us to see this and to see it in other places and say, oh, this is about those who are without financial resource. And that would be true, but it's not limited to that. And it's a little richer than that because the poorness in this is a powerlessness. You have probably experienced both in your life. If you're without a resource, but you have the powers to potentially get that resource, it feels very different than when you're without a resource and you have no power to get it. I've been unemployed before, but I had an education and a degree, and I know people, and I know people who know people, I know influ influential people, I, I, have, I, I know the systems and how to work the systems in my own country, I know how to get jobs. And it doesn't feel nearly as daunting to me as friends of mine who, when they've been unemployed, and they feel as if they, have, they don't have the right skill set. So perhaps the skill set they had was great 30 years ago, but there are no jobs in it anymore. And they live in a space where they don't know the right people to open the doors for them, and there is a powerlessness. This is good news for the powerless and not just those who don't have something. There is also this idea of proclaiming freedom for captives. This is another way to have said this would be the release of slaves for those who've been enslaved. And 
much of the slavery that the, the people who heard this the first time, they would have been thinking of two things. One, they're being held captive, many of them, by Babylon. So they get that. They've been captured, captivated in that sense. But it would also be the kind of economic things that would happen. So if your family owns property, and for whatever reason, a natural disaster or your own uh, illness, perhaps that's come to your family, a long-term illness that comes to your family, you can no longer produce food on that land. You go for a couple of years being unproductive, and you don't have food, and the only way you can get is to buy it, but you don't have money, and so you sell some of your land to one of the neighbors, so you have financial resource to buy land or buy food at the market. But if you continue on in your state, if you become more and more powerless in that space, you may eventually run out of resource again, and now you don't have land to sell. All you have is you to sell, or your oldest son or daughter. And you would sell them as a bond slave. Perhaps you would hope to do that to a neighbor who was kind and good, and they'd work really hard, but they'd be working for somebody else, not for you. But in that system, this proclaiming free freedom for the captives was often used to reference the year of Jubilee, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes, but it is a place of bringing things back into the original design that God had. And so that reference, it, it could have been that. Both of those things would have been on the minds of the people who heard this prophecy the first time. And then this last part, I'm not going to try to unpack this because I like it when you read the little commentaries and they tell you things like, scholars don't agree. And I go, sweet, I can ignore all of it. <laughs> Nobody knows. But, but here's what I, what I discern from this. There's something about the way the Hebrew language works. There's something about the ancient text that we have access to that may or may not be perfect. Um, there's something about some interpretation. And then when the Hebrew was translated into the Greek, the decisions that were made in that process, that proclaiming release for prisoners and giving sight to those who had been in darkness or the blind either sounds so much alike that they weren't sure which one it was or it's a mixed up metaphor a little bit, it's both, it's and. And so depending on where you see this, you will see something like this. This is an interesting, the proclaim release from darkness for the prisoners. Um, but when you get to a New Testament quote of this that probably the New Testament author was referencing the Septuagint, that Greek translation from the original Hebrew, it is sight to the blind. We get the general idea of, of what all of this means, and so it's okay that we don't know. This does not change what is said in here uh, for us. Anointed, he has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is that reference to the year of Jubilee, the, the time in the, in the calendar, the way God intended it to be lived out by the nation of Israel every 50 years, when those who had been become the kind of bond slaves uh, of others because of financial reasons, when the property that had been sold away, the family property had been sold because all of that would have been brought back to the original family. So at least every couple of generations, things were made right and, and families could start anew. So there was not a powerlessness that they would have experienced the same way. You and I know we can endure a lot of hardship if we know there's something better. It's like, I don't, I don't feel nearly as bad about not being able to do what I want to do if I know my kids are going to be okay. And so there would have been that sense of things in the structure, but also to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. It's a point to remind us that with 
with this restoration, with this jubilee that God brings, with this year of God's favor also comes vengeance. The, the God of judgment. The holy God of judgment. And there is no place in scripture where any of us are ever given permission at all for vengeance. You've heard this. It's probably gets quoted, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Only God has the authority to judge in this way, not us. And then we move into um, this, this comfort place. So anointed, God has sent me to comfort. And three different statements about comfort here. We, ha- we know what comfort is. We've been, I hope you have experienced being comforted in your mourning and in your grief. And the power of that when someone comes and sits with you in that space and brings comfort. They don't fix it necessarily. This is not that. that the release is there. This is the other space. This is the comfort. This is the withness of God. To bring comfort, the prophet says... And then describes it. It it talks about the mourning as as the ashes, and that was a traditional symbol of mourning. If you were in mourning, you put ashes on your head, so it was a traditional symbol. They would have known what that meant. It actually says mourning, and then it talks about this spirit of despair. There's nothing in the text that would make make us think that they were talking about some kind of demonic influence in this place. It really was just that, that spirit of despair, like going, I just, oh. And if you've experienced loss that is deep and great, you know that feeling. You know what it is to mourn. And the prophet says, I've been be- anointed, I've been sent by God to comfort, to, to bring a crown of beauty instead of those ashes for your head. This crown of beauty was more like a turban than a gold crown with cool jewels on top, although I'd like the idea of the gold crown. This was more of a turban, often the kind that a bridegroom would wear as he came into the festivities for that beautiful celebration. And then this oil of joy. Women in particular, both men and women, would use oil to clean themselves up and make them really beautiful. When they were really going to go to a party and they're not going off to work, they would use oils on them. Essential oils are not new. There would have been smell involved, so a good smell, but there was a beautifulness to this oil as well. But often brides would be associated with this. And so there's like that overshadowing of a bridegroom and a bride that like, this is a party, this is a celebration in this place. And then this idea of garments of praise. The beautiful, the garments you wear to the finest of your parties. And that's the comfort that this prophet says he has been anointed to bring. Anointed and sent to do these things. And then God comes along and, and begins, and, and I'm just going to look at the beginning of this. It goes on longer for more verses. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. I love, again, the commentators who say these might be oak trees. It very well could have been what you and I think of as oak trees. It might have been another tree that had a similar name in the Hebrew. They don't sound the same in English, so it sounds ridiculous. But a pistachio tree. That the pistachio trees grew prolifically in Palestine, so it would make sense. Um, and, and those trees produced not only the pistachios, which you could eat, they were a very strong tree. They grew very, very tall if they were allowed to continue growing. And the bark could be used for what is like a turpentine. So they are strong trees. 
They are useful trees. They bring life and flourishing to the places that have them. In fact, it's a sign of a flourishing society to have old trees. You've been here a long time. You are well established in this place. And so there is that image that is in there. And then, for the display of his splendor, this is a a reminder to these Jews who've been in exile, who really did mess up big, and God is saying to them, I remember the promise I made to Abraham, that I would bless him and his descendants to be a blessing to all nations. I remember that who you were supposed to be, the role that I gave you as my people, was to be one who would tell the truth who would display the glory of God for all the nations to see. And I am restoring you to that. The thing you were created to be, you have not lost it. I know it seems like it. But what you were created to be, who you were created to be and what you were created to do, I'm bringing that back to you. There's incredible comfort and joy in that place. I fully believe, and Scripture is filled with images for us and and representation and examples of what it is for someone like this prophet to be in a space where God has anointed and sent them to do this good news kind of work, to live this good news kind of life. Anything that we do that begins to restore things in creation back to God's order, So I have a friend who's a marriage and family counselor. I believe that the work that she does in families' lives to bring people back to a place of peace is gospel work. I I have friends who are, I have a friend who, he and his wife are, are church planting in Rome. We have unreached places. This is like a used to be reached, not reached so much anymore messy place. And I believe that as they share the gospel in this place and people for the first time are saying yes to Jesus and getting baptized and becoming a part of their community of faith, a church of almost 150, and if you know anything about Rome, that's a crazy big church in Rome, that this is good news gospel work. But I think Ed Kornfeld, my friend, who's now dead, he passed a a number of years ago, uh, but was the father of a man that I worked with for many years, and he was a part of my church community uh, for 25 years. Uh, Ed's work is gospel work. Ed is a brilliant man, uh, was a brilliant man, a uh, scientist, um, and uh, he, by the, the way his mind worked, he was a, a diligent researcher, pays incredible attention to detail, the whole science thing. He would have been a great missionary doctor somewhere. He'd have been so good at that. He'd have been a good good Bible translator. I think he had the kind of skill sets that he could have been taught the linguistics pretty easily, and he'd have been a great Bible translator. There are a number of things that we would consider full-time ministry roles, full-time gospel roles that we'd said, oh, Ed Ed had been really good, and Ed loved the church, and he loved God, and he loved global missions. He was fully committed to those things, but it's not what God created him to do or what God called him to do. Ed was an organic chemist. And he lived in Indianapolis, and that's what he did for his entire life. But Ed knew a lot of missionaries, like you do. He was a part of a church very much like this one that has large groups of missionaries that stand in front of them at least once a year. I, I, there's cheering. I, like, you, you know, when you did that, I was like, 
Not all churches do this. Not all churches even recognize that missionaries hardly exist. He was a part of that kind of community, and he would say to the missionaries when they would be home on a furlough or for one thing or another, when you go back, when you're out in the remote places where you live and where you work and where you wander about, would you make, take up dirt samples for me? And write down on a piece of paper or whatever where you got it and stick it in a box and ship it to me. And so missionaries did it, because they liked Ed. He was a good guy, and it's like on dirt in a box. This is cool. I'm going to do that. (laughs) William sent him some dirt from Borneo in the 1950s. Borneo dirt. And Ed did what organic chemists who work for Eli Lilly do. He analyzed it in his laboratory, and he did the good hard work of a scientist. And out of that, discovered a bacteria there that became... I always look at this, because I can't get it in my head, vancomycin. It's one of the most commonly used antibiotics in the world. Has literally saved millions of lives. My dad's included just a few months ago. Ed is a good news man. He lives in a space where the work that he does as a chemist for Eli Lilly restores things to what God intended. He brings healing to the nations literally, physical healing through dirt. I love that God does not limit this kind of good gospel work to just a few. It's a unique calling to cross borders and cultures, and I have extraordinary respect and love for those who make that choice. But it is good work to do what you are doing if that is what God created you to do. It is good work, and it is gospel work. You remember, back to the, the little bit of this illustration, the cross is at the center on purpose. All of this that God intends to do, the mission of God to restore all things back to what he intended them to do, that good work required the cross. There was no other way for that to be, for us to be restored, for the earth to be restored than by the way of the cross. Absolutely necessary. In the book of Revelation, which we're studying uh, for Urbana, that's the scripture we're going to use at our conference this year, uh, part, one of the things that keeps striking me is the reality that, that the only one who is worthy to bring all things to fulfillment is the slain lamb. Not the lion of Judah, the lamb of Judah. That is the one who is worthy to bring all things to fulfillment. So it shouldn't be any surprise when we read in the book of Luke, and it's up here if you want to read along, but that Jesus, after he had started his public ministry, he goes back to Nazareth, his home area. He goes into the synagogue, as was his tradition. Uh, Someone hands him the scroll of Isaiah. He opens it up to Isaiah 61, and he reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Scripture says he rolled the scroll up, handed it back to the guy, and sat down because that's what you did when you were about to teach. You sat. That was the position that teachers took. He sat down to teach and says, begins his teaching with, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. 
And then he goes on to do some more teaching, and before the whole thing is over, they're so hacked off at what he has just said that they try to kill him. I mean, this declaration that he made is essentially a declaration that says, I am the one who is fulfilling all of God's promises. And that's blasphemous to say unless it's true. But it was true. You see, the, the words of Isaiah, which would applied, applied appropriately and specifically to the people of Israel in that time and that space, now Jesus is repurposing them. He's essentially bringing them into a place of fulfillment and saying, I now, in the bigger, broader sense, in, in, the, in the allness, not just in this specific place, but in all time, in all of eternity, I am the one who brings these things back together. Jesus says, anointed God has sent me to do these things. Anointed by God, chosen by God, given this mission by God. It's Jesus' job description in, our, in the ways that we think. Anointed God has sent me to do all of this good thing, to proclaim the news and restore and to bring freedom. And Jesus did that throughout his whole ministry. It's a really fun a sort of frame or screen to look at, read all the Gospels and look for the places where Jesus proclaims these things in what he does and what he says. And so he says to Peter and John and James, I will make you fishers of men. I will bring you into a place of fulfillment in the calling that you had. You thought you were made to be fishers of fish. There's more. Or he turns to a guy who was really caught up in a sort of sense of a greed. His, his whole identity was in money, and he says, little short man, come out of the tree. I'm coming over for lunch. Zacchaeus, there is so much more for you. Or he says to the woman who was at the well in the middle of the day, whose reputation is bad enough that she doesn't go when the rest of the women go. And he not only provides her with a living water, reveals to her that he is the Messiah, something individually and just beautifully for her, but he restores to her what she was created and called to do. Scripture tells us she goes back into her town and tells everyone what she's experienced. She was the first evangelist of the Samaritans. And they listen and come out to meet Jesus, and many are saved, Scripture says. What a restoration! When Lazarus was raised from the grave, not only was his faith in the reality of a God who would raise us all, that would resurrect the dead back to life, not only was his faith expanded, strengthened, solidified, but that of Mary and Martha and who knows how many others that were in that place that were believing but saying like others, a disciple perhaps you've heard before, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And Jesus says, I got one for you. This will help you in your unbelief. This is why we need to tell stories to one another, by the way. Because the thing that God did in your life that helped you in your unbelief, tell that story, it'll help somebody else. It's why we gather every week. It is, it is Jesus who brought sight to the blind and restored the legs of the lame and makes those who could not speak to speak again. These are the minute, individual, specific in time and space, glimpses and hints at the wholeness of what he is about to do. Community in Cameroon, the, the boom, uh, beautiful people, believers there, uh, had completed the, the translation of their New Testament, and they were ready to throw the party and the dedication, a little bit like a baby dedication and a church service and a missions conference all rolled into one. It was a five-day event. There were parades. There were feasts. There was great clothes and hats. 
Like, it wasn't just come as you are. It was come as you are. And people do. I love, I just, there, there were a lot, I've seen a lot of pictures of this, and there are a lot of women dressed like this and with more. The amount of just beautiful thing. And men with all this regalia in, in various ways. Uh, they did as you often do when your community hits this kind of a milestone. They invited those dignitaries from their various regions to come. We might call them chiefs or kings, the, the fawn. And uh, the danger in inviting them is that the, those who are in these places of power arrive when they want to, they stay as long as they want to, they do what they want to do, and they leave. And you have no choice over it. When they show up, they show up. And you stop what you're doing and you find out what they want to do. And so they were ready for that. They would come in with an entourage, a couple of people carrying their chair that nobody else can touch, um, people carrying what, you know, shading them, carrying whatever they needed for them, making way, making the people move out of the space so the fawn could come, even announcing the fawn at times. So it could be quite disruptive. Um, but they thought, okay. Well, a couple of the fun, in some way, allowed, let them know that we're coming, we're going to stay for a few days, which was unheard of, that the fun would give any event that kind of attention and time. Uh, but, but they thought, oh, well, okay, they, want, they can. Um, but then they said, we, we'd like to be a part of the parade. And what we'd like to do is the two of us in our regalia would like to carry a throne, so not have our thrones carried by our entourage, as you would have normally done. We want to carry a throne in. And on that throne, we want a copy of the New Testament as a representation that the authority of God is greater than ours. Transformation comes when the good news comes to a people, and it begins to show itself in regular things that have been transformed as well. What are we doing in our own lives? I start asking myself, what are the things that I do that I just do without thinking that I could, I could transform them to some degree to demonstrate my submission to, my love for, my commitment to God in my everyday life? Not just sticking a Jesus loves me sticker on something, but really in the way that I live out my life, what, what could I do in that place? So I, I mentioned at the beginning that, or at the beginning of his ministry, uh, Jesus reads this passage of Isaiah and essentially says, this is my mission. This is what God anointed me and sent me for. When he gets to the end of his earthly ministry, he makes a number of statements to his, his disciples and through them to us. There's one recorded in Matthew's gospel at the end that we're familiar with. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all peoples. Go do that work. Go be the gospel. Go take the gospel. Proclaim it. But there's another place that happens uh, in John's gospel. Jesus says, peace be with you. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Anointed, he sent us. Anointed, he sends us. Chosen by God. Paul describes it as, you are God's workmanship created to do the good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. And that's not just for you as an individual. Some of you are thinking, I know what that means for me as an individual. Good. Or you may be thinking, I have no idea what that means for me as an individual. But it's also for us as a community of people. In fact, Jesus makes these statements to groups, not to individuals. He says, you, go. I have anointed you, body of Christ. I've anointed you, city church, to go. 
to take the good news to those who are powerless, to proclaim release and hope and restoration in everything that you do, whatever it is that your role might be. So I'm going to encourage you as we close, uh, I'm going to invite you in just a moment to stand and read these words. This is the passage that Jesus read out of Isaiah. It's that version, and I have changed the pronouns, and so it is this community of people speaking as a community. You may be thinking to yourself, I can't honestly say these words all by myself. Okay, but, but I'm praying that you would have the faith to be able to say them within the collective, within the community of people, and say, together we We believe that we are anointed and called to do these things. After we've read this together, I'm going to continue on in prayer, and then you will be dismissed. You know that there will be prayer ministers here. There's also missionaries in the hallway that would love to talk to you. Listen to their stories. They have stories of God's faithfulness in their lives that will strengthen your faith. If nothing else, if you don't know what to ask, a missionary say, where have you seen God do something that surprised you, that strengthened your faith, and then just sit back? Maybe sit down, because <laughs> there'll be some stories. But I encourage you to do that, and throughout the week, the same. And so stand with me. Let's read these words together aloud, and then I'll pray over you. The Spirit of the Lord is on us, because he has anointed us to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent us to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Holy God, I believe that this is true, that this is what you have called us as your disciples to, that you have invited us to be ambassadors of your reconciliation, to be the voices of of your truth and hope for a world that is broken. Not only have you reached out and restored us in our relationship with you and with each other and with this beautiful creation, not only are you doing that work in us, you're doing it through us. I pray that for anyone in this room who themselves feel blinded to what it might be that you are asking them to, to any of the places where where there is some kind of bondage that's keeping people back from saying yes to what you might be asking them for, uh, whether, whether that is to walk faithfully in a job that they're in right now or to consider something crazy like leaving it all behind and learning a language and getting a passport and going someplace that feels uncomfortable, whatever it might be, anything in between, Father, would you give great freedom and hope in the midst of that, that this body here, this church, would be your light in this place, in this community, that people would see the love and the good works that are done by this community of people, the way they pray, the way they worship, the way they give of their resources and share with one another, the way they do good hard work, all of the things they do, that people would see that and glorify you. Father, I believe that you you have done that in the past, and your intention is to continue to doing that. So give these, my brothers and sisters, the daily courage to say yes to you, to know, to let them rest in, their, in that they've been anointed and they have been sent. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.